Mike Armstrong. And I'm Tammy Armstrong. And this is a podcast about people, places, and data. And we are excited to be here with our guest, Kirsten Delagardel Shelley of the Des Moines School Board. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, by now, you know the game. We're going to go through our five questions and listen back to back episodes uh, to hear more from our other guests. But mm-hmm. for now, let's go ahead and get started. So, Kirsten, what do you do and how did you get there? So I am the newest elected to the Des Moines School Board in the at-large position. So if you don't know the landscape of the Des Moines School Board, we have seven seats and four of those are districted seats. So those are based on where you geographically live in the city. And then there are three that are at-large. So mm-hmm. anyone within Des Moines Public Schools who's you know eligible to run for office could run for those seats. And so one of those seats became open because Connie Bozen decided to run for city council. And so I thought, hey, this could be a great time to do this. And I kind of went back and forth on whether or not I should. And you guys know Chelsea Lepley. Mm-hmm. She had said something when I had said, like, I don't really know if I actually need to get involved right now. And she said, well, what if, you know, you like the way that it's going. What if someone else gets elected and then it changes everything? Mm. And so I just thought, darn it, Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided to jump in. And it was actually really great because so many people put a ton of work into helping me get elected. Nathan Erickson did a lot of work um, for me as my campaign manager. Kaylin Cody worked mm-hmm. on it with me. Um, And then just lots of other friends made phone calls and knocked doors and wrote postcards. And I think that was the thing that I realized about Des Moines is so great, and I've seen it over and over and over again since then, is that when someone I know is launching a new project, everyone just shows up. Mm -hmm. And everyone rallies around that person. Mm -hmm. And so I think Des Moines, I don't know if Des Moines is unique in that way, but I would say that Iowa, or at least the Midwest, is kind of Mm -hmm. unique in that way. Yeah, we've certainly felt that with this show, right? (laughs) Just this amazing network of people just suddenly come together and, and help you out. It's great. But with being a teacher, it was really important for me when I start to think about education, and I start to think about education in Iowa, especially in Iowa, we've always had a really strong history mm-hmm. of being first in education. And I think we're really in a place where there's a potential for us to lose that, that mm-hmm. we're already slipping, that Iowa isn't going to be the place where grandparents are going to say to their grandkids, like, hey, move home with your families, raise your kids, send them to our schools. Like, that's what we want. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think our current administration says that they want. But I think those of us that are living this day to day know that that's not really the reality of our lives and that we're kind of fighting every day to make sure that we're securing the legacy of our education and our national resources and all of those things that we love. Yeah. So I'm assuming that the four wards overlap with the city council wards? Not even exactly, because Windsor Heights, actually, part of Windsor Heights is part of Des Moines School District. Interesting. Um, And then there are parts of Des Moines that are technically Des Moines address, but are like Carlisle School District, or um, Hmm. there's like, there's parts of North Des Moines that actually go to Seidel School District, um, and they still have Des Moines addresses. And can you tell us a little bit more about what sort of topics does school board tackle? I kind of tell people this if they come from a business background. If you think about the Board of Education for a school district, it's very similar when you think of the Board of Directors for a big corporation. It's really our job to make sure that we're the last stop. We're making sure we're following the law. We're making sure that money is being spent appropriately. We're really focusing on really big, big vision things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things as a teacher was I kind of knew that. I knew that the school board helped to set the tone and the direction of conversation of where the district was going with initiatives. But 
it's just interesting to me when I get the emails from the parent about something that happened in a classroom. And as a teacher, my immediate reaction is like, oh God, that's so, I'm like, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. that's so bad. Like, but do they have to go to the classroom teacher first? Like right. there's definitely kind of a hierarchy, but at the same point, like I would never want to discourage a parent from coming before the school board and telling us about what's happening in their kid's mm-hmm. building. Because oftentimes we make a decision and we don't necessarily, I myself and the other teacher who's on the board, we might be able to further envision those steps forward of how that's going to affect teachers, how that might affect kids, but we don't always know unless we're getting that feedback. And so we've had quite a few meetings actually this spring and summer. We've had a lot of parents show up Mm -hmm. um, and it does make our nights longer, but it's really great to hear what's going on with parents and their families. And I love hearing directly from kids. Actually, we had an example recently. There were some students at Roosevelt who came. They were really concerned that they were losing, I think, six or eight full-time positions at Roosevelt. I can't remember which. And one of the choices that their principal made was to get rid of some of the hall monitors Mm -hmm. in the hallways. And the students, because of the climate and because of conversation, are rightly concerned about their safety, about school safety. And so they came and they, you know, talked to us about how that could affect it. And I would never want those kids to be discouraged that just because as a school board member it wasn't my place to intervene or to change a decision made at a building level that that doesn't mean I want them to stop showing up to come talk to us right because they were doing exactly what we want kids in public education to do to be able to craft arguments to talk mm-hmm. to elected officials to advocate for what they want and, and that's really cool that they took the initiative to do yeah that. yeah so we made sure in our last work session to like tell you know, the superintendent to tell them that like, just because we're not doing, taking action on this doesn't mean it wasn't effective. It doesn't mean that we didn't hear you. It's just not necessarily part of what we do. We don't intervene on a building level. We're very big. It's big umbrella, big picture. It's, it's oversight. Really my job is one employee and that's the superintendent. I make sure that he's doing his job and that he's following policy and that, you know, he's doing what's best for kids. I think it's funny. This is at least the second time Chelsea's name has come up on the show. (laughs) And I'm going to have to get Chelsea in here. I know. I swear we are not sourcing all of our, uh, she's not like our agent for getting (laughs) That's what everyone's going to think. They're going to start looking her up. Like they'll find her on IMDB or something like Chelsea Leslie. (laughs) Executive producer of Bright Lights Big Data. So let's move into one that seems to be everybody's favorite question. Okay. Uh, what are some common misconceptions about the school board? Okay. So I think we kind of, I kind of touched on one of just that I think sometimes people don't really know what the school board does. I think that they think I can influence funding or the way that funds are distributed, which in some ways I can, but we set board priorities. So we currently are really focused on males of color and in shrinking the gaps between our males of color performance academically and all of our other students. So the average is closer to like a true average and we're not seeing those big gaps is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, Preschool is one of our initiatives that we're really focused on. We know that kids that go to preschool have a greater chance of graduating high school, of being successful later um, because they just get those base skills that they really need to be successful in school. Algebra is another one that we really focus on, on making sure that our kids are passing algebra and not just passing algebra, but passing it early so they can get to some advanced math before they leave high school. Mm -hmm. Because even if kids want to go into the trades, if they want to become a lineman with an electric company and they want to join a union and they want to become a plumber or a steam fitter, they have to have a certain level of math and science. It's just an Mm -hmm. expectation. And so if we can't get them through algebra by ninth or 10th grade, they're going to be missing those base skills when they go to get those jobs. And then the last one is K-5 literacy. Mm. So we're really focused on making sure that our kids are getting a base of literacy and that they're reading. Um, Research shows that around third grade, kids stop learning how to read and start reading to learn. 
Mm-hmm. And so they have to be able to make that hmm. transition of, you guys probably know this in your jobs, like most of the information that you get, mm-hmm. you're reading it. Right. So without high levels of literacy skills, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So. Well, and beyond just literacy, but also the critical thinking. Right, right. You, that you comes with the, the reading. comfortable and, literacy to get there, yeah. too, you know. Right. Big picture rather than fine mm-hmm. details. What other misconceptions do you um, do you experience? Do you set curriculum? No, <laughs> we don't. Like, So we set priorities around curriculum. And so outside of the four board priorities I talked about, another thing is we're really talking about equity and diversity. And so one of the big things for me is making sure that we have diverse books for kids and that the curriculum reflects our students. And this work kind of started before I came on the school board, but I'm incredibly supportive of it, is they're actually having groups of students rewrite some key classes Hmm. and the curriculum. So students are working with teachers and curriculum experts around, you know, well, these are the skills you have to learn. What would be some things that might be relevant to you and your peers to help you learn them like how like what projects or what content because you know we can teach kids for example because I taught English I know in English we teach kids like well what's the theme of the story right Mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter what story we read to figure that out we could read any story they're Mm -hmm. all gonna have themes so which ones might be most relevant interesting etc to kids so we really want to work to make curriculum more relevant for kids and so that's something I've been supportive of and I'm excited to see what happens when they continue the work. So and we've touched again we've touched on some of this you know why should the community care about what you do how does school board impact the community? School funding is incredibly complicated and we could mm. probably break that down in like a whole separate data episode. <laughs> <laughs> we could really geek on school finance and how that happens. The big conception is that a lot of the financing comes from the federal government or even from the state government. Really the revenue generator for that comes from property taxes. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really matter how much revenue we make. It doesn't matter how high we set property taxes in Des Moines. That doesn't mean we get to spend more money on kids. Hmm. The state sets a limit. So the state says you can spend this amount per student, and you multiply that by the number of students you had on the certified enrollment date in October, the school year before, and that's how much you get to spend the next school year. Huh. And how often do they update that dollar amount? um, (laughs) So... As we've seen, like we've gotten zero percent more SSA. So that state supplemental aid number that comes when they when we say zero percent, what that really means is we're getting the same amount that we got last year per student. Mm-hmm. We're not increasing it. So if inflation is what three and a quarter percent a year, that's the inflation rate. So that's the rate that it's going to cost all of our employees to live mm-hmm. in this community. But what if we get zero percent from the state? Mm-hmm. What that means is just the cost to do everything the exact same have now increased 3.25 percent and we've got zero new money. Mm-hmm. So this last school year, what that meant was we cut 14 million dollars. And next year it could mean 22 and the following year it could be 30. And that's like an addition. Yeah. So if we cut 22 next year, that really means we've cut, what is that? 36, 36 yeah. million dollars from our budget. So November is really important. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. School board specifically always seems interesting to me. So I certainly have answers in my head. My parents were both teachers, my yeah. dad is on the school board, but I'm curious, you know, for you... Not the local school board. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, in Illinois. Um, But some people see school board as different because they don't have kids. Mm. You know, why does the school board matter to somebody who doesn't have children? Yeah. Yeah. Do you you like to go to the store and get the correct change back? (laughs) (laughs) Do you like to, you know drive around town with people that Mm -hmm. understand and can obey like lights traffic (laughs) lights i mean part of school 
is teaching kids and people how to function in society. Some of it is conditioning around like norms and mm-hmm. you know we could we could have a whole separate conversation on whether or not that's right that we should be, you know, teaching kids one specific culture or right. you know because that does feel sometimes like what public schools do and I would want to I continue want to push and expand what that means, but some of it is just, you know, we teach kids to raise their hand. Right. What it means to be respectful, what it means to work together collaboratively, mm-hmm. how do you work out conflict and so if we don't have someone making sure that that happens and happens well and I also try to tell people this too that the reason we have great companies in the Des Moines area the reason that Wells Fargo is here the way that the reason that principal and nationwide and the reason we have so many great startups is because they can get their workforce Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. and the day that they can't get their workforce here, that they're having to recruit a lot out of state and they're having to pay for people to move here and try to convince them that like, yeah, you should live in Iowa where it's, you know, negative 20 degrees in January and like 110 in July, you should totally move there. Like the day we have to do a lot of work to convince people that like this is where they need to move because, Mm -hmm. you know, we can't find that workforce here is the day that we'll really feel the impact of not having great public education. And at that point, it's too late. So the key to economic development is our public education system. I'm giggling because we both moved here for jobs. (laughs) (laughs) So someone did convince you that it was great. But but like, we can't do that for how many people work at Wells Fargo? Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know how many people work at Wells Fargo. The complex is what, like two acres or something? I don't know. It's like 6,000. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those, sure, are probably from out of state. But I would imagine that a lot of them are from... Iowa or mm-hmm. the Midwest and you know we're not trying to pull in from LA or San Francisco right. so much. So let's talk present day. Okay. Uh, what are you most excited about right now? Excitement might be not the right word but so we've switched bell times in Des Moines. You've probably heard about it yeah. um, just a little <laughs> bit um, but I'm just kind of excited to see how it works. It's going to change things and I think a good example of that is the 42nd Street exit. There's an elementary school mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. And those kids are going to be arriving to school earlier now. Mm. And I know one of the things, and the high school kids are going to be going later, and I know one of the things there for me in the morning when I leave is I'm leaving like 7.15, so Mm -hmm. I'm leaving about the same time all the high school kids are trying to get into the parking lot for school. (laughs) So when I'm trying to turn right onto 42nd, some of them are trying to get off the interstate to turn Mm -hmm. left onto 42nd so that we're all heading north. And I just noticed this, like, it's just so congested. And I'm just wondering how much this will have a positive impact maybe on people's commute, Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of concerns about, is it going to be safe for little kids early in the morning? And so while it's not really an excitement thing for me, it's the implementation of knowing and wondering, Mm -hmm. like, are we making the right decision? Because while I I strongly feel we're definitely doing what's best for the big kids, Mm -hmm. I want to make sure we're doing what's right for the the little kids, too. So Mm -hmm. we actually worked on some monitoring or some ways that we're going to be keeping track of this throughout the school year. So I'll be really interested to see the first quarter results in October to see what's happening. And I've also been working on a couple other things with some other school board members. So we've been working on a policy around collective bargaining and the way that the district Mm -hmm. will do that moving forward, because I know there's a lot of uncertainty as a teacher. I feel a lot of uncertainty around my contract and so knowing I just think you know there being a written policy that employees can refer to Mm -hmm. in these times when it feels so uncertain and it feels so anxiety filled I'm hoping that that will help if we can get that taken care of before the school year starts and so for our listeners who may be just kind of 
getting up to speed on what's going yeah. on in the local environment. Yeah, so there were a certain number of topics that used to be required that you bargained on, and I can't remember what all of them were, but there were several. There was a list of several, and then there was a really long list of permissives, and there were very few in the you cannot negotiate these. And essentially what the legislature chose to do was shift a whole bunch of things into the you can't negotiate these, leave a few things in permissive, and the only thing you're required to talk about is base wages. So not mm -hmm. even the wages of different experience levels, but just what's the base you have to pay people when they first get their job. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's arguments that, oh, this could allow us to do some creative things. We could offer bonuses to recruit in areas that are low or, you know, do some other things. But ultimately, there's a lot of pieces that go into education. And one of the big reasons why this pay scale started was there are stories in districts. And I've heard one even in the district where I work where there was a, a single mother of four kids. She was a widow. Um, her husband had died in the Vietnam War, and she was trying to support four kids on a teacher's salary and found mm -hmm. out that one of her male colleagues was making $15,000 more than she was. Jeez. And she was trying to support four kids on her own. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of arguments for why we do that. We mm -hmm. don't often, I think, as a society, we're not great mm -hmm. at talking about money no. and talking about, like, why men and women should have the same salaries. And I'm not saying that that's what would happen immediately with collective bargaining, but I think even when we're seeing historically that, you know, Latina and African American and black women make 60% or 50% what white men make and that, you know, even white women are only making like 85%, I think was what the newest numbers I saw somewhere in there mm -hmm. of what white men make, that over time we could see this start to happen in education where for a long time it's been very equitable because there was a step and ladder approach that you knew exactly where you should be based on the number of years you've worked, the degree that you had, the experience that yeah. you had, that you knew at least in that way you were being taken care of fairly. So you mentioned with the bell changes, yeah, measuring how that's working and checking mm -hmm. in on that. I'm curious if you can share any of the, the metrics you'd be looking at. Yeah, so the metrics aren't official, mm -hmm. but I mean, they'd be kind of some of the things that you'd expect, right? Like attendance rates, the number of breakfasts mm -hmm. that are eaten at the buildings every day. You know, some of those things that are going to kind of tell us are kids in school, are they safe, are they on time? And then, you know, what we're really hoping is that changing the bell times will have a great effect on some of our other things. When we look at algebra, one of the biggest things is that kids that are failing algebra, we've often found were in that first period that was really early in the morning. Hmm. I think that was some of the data that there's some correlation, and not necessarily first period, but there's some correlation between attendance and their grades mm -hmm. in algebra, obviously, right? Like if you're not there. Yeah. So <laughs> that we're hoping that the, the schedule will adjust and give kids a greater chance of success. Uh, yeah, we talk a lot about um, kind of problem solving and problem approaches and how you sort of measure things and making sure that you're measuring something that's going to relate to your outcomes that you're looking for. So I'm always curious when somebody's yeah. got something new that they've yeah. got going on, like, well, how are you going to be looking at that? Yeah, because it is really interesting, you know, the types of things we dig into. Because when we're looking at males of color, we're not just looking at grades. We're also looking at attendance. Our kids take a Gallup poll, which kind of surveys, you know, how hopeful do they feel. And oh, yeah. so all of that kind of factors into... Mm -hmm you know, not just that males of color goal that we have, but also, you know, we're monitoring treatment of students and treatment of staff and treatment of parents and community members as they interact and come into our schools. And so trying to find the right metrics is really interesting. Mm -hmm. There are definitely some metrics that I, that I get the monitoring report and I am like, I don't see how this really shows me mm -hmm. this. And so we're constantly, you know, going back to the superintendent and saying, like, can we tweak this? Can we can we change that? Because we all, well, we want to make sure we keep a consistent baseline so that we know how we're improving. Right. <laughs> it's also really important that we have the right data so that we're not writing goals against ourselves, but we're writing goals against something that actually would show improvement and would, mm -hmm. like, mean something. So 
biggest, toughest question, and we're recording this around 5 p.m., so this is very timely for this us is as perfect. well. What should we have for dinner tonight? Okay, so you've had tacos, right? Mm-hmm. Like, tacos are a staple. You make a baked potato, and you put it on top of the baked potato. So you put, like, your taco meat and the cheese and the salsa and oh the sour gosh. cream. It's so good. Does that have, like, a, a cute name? A taco like, baked potato. taco baked potato. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. No, it's, like, um, in, in Portland, uh, nachos that use tater tots instead of chips oh, were really okay. popular, okay. and they called them tachos. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I want, like, a portmanteau of, like, baked potato taco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds yummy. I love potatoes, so... And I love tacos, so that's that's. I think it's like the Iowa thing of like mixing tacos where they don't belong. (laughs) Taco pizza, taco. Like I had this at a deli in a small town. Walking tacos and taco pizza were two things I had never encountered before Iowa. Well, and here's my embarrassing story: is I heard people talking about walking tacos for a while when I first moved here, and I did not ask, and I had not seen them, and so somebody was finally like, yeah, we had walking tacos with the kids the other night. I'm like, okay. This whole time I'd been picturing, like, a man in a mascot, like, taco suit, walking around. <laughs> like, what the heck is a walking taco? And they finally explained it to me, like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's just like that's, Pokemon Go. You have to go better. and catch the taco. <laughs> yeah, you have to go catch the taco. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Yeah. Well, because, let's be honest, you can walk with tacos normally. Right. Right. Already true. pretty portable. Yes, yes. Portable. Tacos are like the, the best portable food. Like it's already a street food. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten, for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, we're back. Yay. Uh, we had a fantastic conversation with Kirsten. Really happy to have her on the show and learn a little bit more about school boards, what they do. We had a couple of things that really stood out to us, and this is our time to explore the space. Pull out your compass. Here we go. <laughs> do you use a compass in space? <laughs> I didn't know you meant outer space. I thought it was like just this room is a space. <laughs> All right, astronauts. So Kirsten mentioned performance measures and how as somebody tracking data and trying to make analysis, we have this impulse to want to change them over time. And that's really difficult when you want to maintain a baseline. And one of the difficulties for me and my work, and I would imagine for her work as well, is that we're looking at you know, 20, 30 years, you know, long-term planning for a very complex system. But the types of data we get, how we measure the data and what we're going for shifts. So for transportation, you know, we never used to have traffic cameras Mm -hmm. that can measure at an intersection what is actually causing congestion or delay or crashes or whatever. We can now use things that I'm sure some people don't want to hear this, but cell phones, Mm -hmm. GPS signals and cell phones so that we can see that on I-235 at these minutes, traffic is going 35 miles per hour. But it's all things that we didn't have before. And so when we're looking at our performance measures, it starts to make sense to measure slightly different things. In the past, we'd be like a University Avenue corridor. This eight mile stretch of University Avenue is congested. With the newer data we have, we can actually go back and be like, you know what, only these three intersections are actually congested. Everything else is fine. It's just now we can measure at a more precise level. And that can be internal versus external forces. You're choosing to change a metric because you have a belief that this other way of doing it is better. Right. So a specific example when we're talking about congestion. For the longest time we measured delay. Just how much longer is it taking. And as we sort of dig into new data sources, we can measure things differently and we start to understand a bit more about how people behave and what their preferences are. It's more important to most people that their trip is reliable. Mm. 
So it doesn't matter if we can get this to be a 10 minute trip, but maybe once a week, it's gonna be a 40 minute trip and you're never gonna know mm -hmm. when that's gonna happen. Like you can have that or you can have it be a 20 minute trip, but it is almost always a 18 to 22 minute trip. Yeah. People prefer that. Mm -hmm. um, and we have ways to measure and methodologies available that we can now measure congestion, set our performance measures, and set our targets mm -hmm. based on reliability instead of just delay or average time. For these long range transportation plans that we do, the one that we're working on right now is out to 2050. Mm -hmm. And because transportation is such a behemoth, you need a decent number of years of data to really say meaningful things. Mm -hmm. But we're gonna update this long range plan in four years. It makes me think of that book, The Name of the Wind. Patrick Rothfuss' book is set at this university. They have this enormous library, mm -hmm. so many books. A new head librarian will take over and they're like, I have this new system mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. really good. So let's start changing how we organize everything. Mm -hmm. But it's such a big library that it takes so long to switch it over that a lot of times they don't finish before a new head librarian takes over. And then they're like, I have this even better idea. Mm -hmm. So you just get this like muddled mass mm -hmm. of different systems that work in pieces, but you don't have a full picture that really functions as efficiently as mm -hmm. you want it to. Almost back to your example of the metric itself, reliability versus delay, <laughs> you kind of have to weigh the costs and benefits of having reliable, consistent metrics through you know now to 2050 that's such a longer span of time than i ever think about right. for business and you can get lucky if it happens to be that you were collecting that data all along and now it's just changing the way you arrange the numbers but if the way that you want to calculate it has never been done before and you have to start gathering it what we would call a day forward change right that's going to take some convincing probably yeah Apologies to our wonderful people out there. Like, I'm not going to provide an answer to this. We don't really have one. Right. There's um, no one-size-fits-all. Uh, West Des Moines is building sort of a Grand Avenue extension. Mm. And that project has been in planning for decades. The performance measures that he had in place at that point, the entire context and the people mm -hmm. doing the measuring has changed over. Yeah, I mean, if you were planning during horse and buggy times, and then in the middle of your long-term plan, the car is invented, you don't want to be so inflexible that you can't right. accommodate that. You know, five years from now, when maybe autonomous vehicles have such a huge role, people will keep coming up with new software and new tech to help us measure things. So the jump to having traffic cameras mm -hmm. at intersections. What is the jump going to be in the next three to five years? So I guess all I want to say is, Kirsten, I'm very sympathetic. <laughs> uh, let me know if y'all figure it out. But yeah, performance measures are always tough, but they are also very important to be able to tell our story and to make sure the policies and actions we're taking are creating the change that we actually want to see. And speaking of creating changes, one of the ways that people talk about measuring change is often to use tests of statistical significance. And that was something I picked up on in, in our conversation with Kirsten. And so that got me wanting to talk about beer. Okay. Yeah, you know, just very natural segue here. But beer is essentially the reason that we have one of the most commonly used statistical tests today. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more. In 1901, St. James's Gate Brewery, which was then the largest brewery in the world and happens to be the folks behind Guinness, opened up a laboratory and started hiring 
inspiring scientists to advance the craft of brewing. They weren't just going to be complacent with being the largest brewery in the world. They wanted to keep advancing the craft. I'm also <laughs> sure they had a ton of difficulty hiring scientists just out of school to come work on beer. I know, right? Uh, so one of the scientists in their employ around this time was William Seely Gossett, who had recently graduated from Oxford with a degree in chemistry and mathematics. And even among statisticians, this name is not like super well-known or people have taken stats classes. Oh, bummer, no Gossett test? Uh, well, we're getting there. So Gossett actually invented a few crucial methods to efficiently estimate the quality of barley by only testing small samples. Up to this point, statisticians generally had hundreds of you know patients or whatever they were testing um, so they could use numbers in a different way because they had so many to test on. But you know, Gossett looking at barley, he might have two or three samples. So, you know, you don't want to have to test every single grain of barley, but you still want to be confident in its quality. So how do you do that? Well, Gossett hung out uh, with a guy by the name of Carl Pearson, who is more famous among statisticians and does have stuff named after him. The Pearson test. Exactly, the Pearson chi-squared <laughs> test. <laughs> I think this is less demonstrating my knowledge of statistics and more my knowledge of how people name things. <laughs> uh, Gossett's name, you know, not as famous, um, and his invention was not named after him. But why not? Well... There's a couple of different stories as to why this was, but it's generally understood that due to his employment at Guinness, Gossett did not publish his works under his own name, but instead he used a pseudonym of student. Gossett's famous buddy Pearson shared his work with another famous statistician, Fisher, who has even more stuff named after him. Um, Fisher Price. Well, <laughs> no. he does actually have something called the sexy sun hypothesis, which is even sillier than going with Fisher Price. But that's a whole nother episode that we could get into. Uh, but Fisher uh, gave credit to the pseudonym uh, and named these concepts the student's T distribution and student's T test. And, and that's in the letter T, not the beverage. So Gossett's work ended up creating one of the most commonly used statistical tests all thanks to his work on the science of beer, but he would never be as famous as these other statisticians who kind of helped him out and worked on it. And interestingly enough, he literally worked his whole life at Guinness. Hmm. So what does this test actually do? It tests things like whether or not two populations have the same average, so two different groups of people or grains of barley or whatever, without having to pull every single one of them that exists and testing them and taking their average can look at whether or not a sample of data supports a claim that the population average is X, Y, or Z. So if we say the average age of people in the world is 40, we can take 100 people, gather all their ages, get the average, and then say with some degree of confidence, it's reasonable that the average age of the world is 40. So for a typical test, there are four important factors. The assumed or known population average, the, the absolute truth of if you could measure every single piece of what you're trying to measure, what its average would be. The sample average, which is you've sampled some smaller amount that you can get. And the further this average is from the true or assumed average, um, the more likely we are to say it is statistically significantly different. The sample size, which is how many 
things you're testing. Are we, are we getting a hundred people to get the average age? Are we getting a thousand people? The larger that size is, the more confident we can feel in the results. And then the variation in the sample. The larger the variation is, the harder it is to feel confident in those results. So if we've got some two-year-olds and some 90-year-olds and everything in between, that's a lot of variation in that sample of a hundred people. Whereas if we've got mostly people between the ages of 36 and 45, we're gonna feel differently about that sample. So we plug all of these factors, these really four factors into a formula. We get a number. That number basically corresponds with a probability. And then it's up to us to decide what probability we're comfortable with. So generally when things are statistically significant, it's at a percentage level. So we say this is significant at the 99% level or the 95% level at some degree of confidence and then we decide if it's confident enough. So whether people are using exactly students t-test or something else, this is generally how most statistical tests that I've encountered work is that you have your sample size, whatever metric you're measuring versus what you assume it to be, and the amount of variation in your sample. Those are all really key values. And this is generally what people mean when they say something is statistically significant. The general behavior of the numbers leads us to be more or less confident or doubtful that two numbers are meaningfully different from each other. So taking it back to our discussion with Kirsten, you know, when she talks about performance gaps among different student demographics, She's saying that that difference is large enough to be meaningful at a statistical level. You know, we can strongly and confidently doubt that the differences are just random chance and suggest that they are due to factors associated with those demographics. So once you can see that it's statistically significant, the difference between these different groups, you can say, this is likely stemming from something from these groups, something from our policies, something from how these schools are being run and the experiences that these students are having. And that is a trigger for policymakers, from school board members to school staffs to say, we need to make a change. We need to make some sort of intervention to deal with this disparity. Absolutely, and that's a really important point. The test doesn't tell us why it's different or not different. It just starts to trigger and kick off that investigation. It's unlikely that males of color have a performance gap with other students by random chance, and it just so happened that they fell into that group. There is a significant difference, and now the real work begins to figure out why and how to mitigate that difference. Yeah, which again is why metrics are so important and why I'm terrified of our changing metrics and how to deal <laughs> yeah. with them on such a long-term scale. And so that's why it's important to have a plan up front and kind of use a scientific method and say, these are our hypotheses, these are the ways we're going to gather data, this is how we're going to test it. And so if you do need to change your measures midstream, you kind of again need to go through that to some extent and do it a little bit blind. Mm -hmm. if you can before you commit to it, I think. And not just say, well, if we do this measure, we're going to look really good. <laughs> right, which is always tough. Well, on that very helpful note, <laughs> this has been Bright Lights Big Data. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks again to Kirsten Delagardel Shelley for her time and insight. And join us in two weeks when we will talk to Deidre Dejir. Until next time.